I am uh, really thankful to the Lord for granting me this privilege to preach his word another time, and I'm really grateful. I want for us to turn to our text, which is really two short verses in Romans chapter 9. So if you would turn with me to Romans 9, reading from verse 22 to 23. Romans 9, 22 to 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Shall we pray? Lord, we ask that as we pause before you, that we might be mindful of how greatly indebted we are to you for life. Lord, we look at ourselves and we look within us and we see what is within us and we know how you look at us. But Father, you do not deal with us with our iniquities, But, Father, you have dealt with us with great grace. And so, Father, this morning we can only speak of your renown and your fame, your glory, and we want to exalt you, we want to extol you. And we pray that, Father, that we might be mindful that day after day you give us time in order that we may amend our lives and turn back to you. So, Lord, this is another moment of grace where we may hear your word and turn back to you in repentance. The whole of life is one of repentance. And so, Father, we pause and we look at your mercy and we're deeply grateful. So speak to us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In my time of being set aside by the Lord... I've been thinking much of the mercy of God. And I found that you couldn't think too much about the mercy of God before you start thinking about the wrath of God. Because mercy would be a meaningless idea if you hadn't done anything wrong deserving of punishment for which mercy spares you. So I found that the more I thought about the mercy of God, the more I found myself thinking of the wrath of God. See, if you didn't break any law, you wouldn't need mercy. In a court trial, it is only when you know that you no longer have a prayer that your defense will prevail, that your defense lawyer will step in and begin to plea for mercy. And so I found that if I were to make much of mercy of God, I must first make much of the wrath of God. That if I minimize the wrath of God, I would minimize the mercy of God. And so I found myself in the last many weeks looking at the two attributes again and again. The mercy of God, the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the mercy of God. And our text this morning is one of those few rare texts that comes closest 
to in one breath speak about both the mercy and the wrath of God. And this text has stumped many people in two ways. Firstly, the first thing that troubles people is this, that this God whom we thought is loving has turned out to be wrathful. But let's, let's tease this out. If I should ask you, who is God saving you from? If you say, from my sin, you're right. But not quite there. If you say, from hell, you're again quite right. But not really hitting it. If you say, God is saving me from Satan, from the world, from flesh, you're still right but you're really not hitting it home. Supremely, the only person that God is saving us from is God himself. Now, who would have thought that God is saving us from God himself? Romans 5, 9, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? John the Baptist simply says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? You know, there is a day fixed called the day of the wrath and righteous judgment of God. On that day, people will call out to the rocks and the mountains, Fall on me, hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. Jeremiah calls it the day of Jacob's trouble. Ezekiel calls it a time of doom. Joel refers it to a great and terrible day. And our Lord simply calls it a time of great tribulation. Now, does all that sound like a gentle slap on the wrist? No. But what could humans have done so horrendously wrong to deserve a fate like that? That God should be so judgmental, that God should be so vengeful? What rattles people's cage is that this God that you speak so much about could be this judgmental, could be this wrathful. But I believe that when you reflect on it a little more, you will see that it is not logically inconsistent for a loving God to be wrathful. Let me put it this way. If God is incapable of wrath and anger, he wouldn't be a perfect God. A God who is incapable of hatred against sin would be a God who is morally deficient. What kind of a God would he be if he looked upon upon vice and virtue with equal satisfaction? If he cannot hate what is profane and vile, he cannot love what is pure and lovely. Arthur Pink puts it this way, how could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile. You know, people often say God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. David knew better. David says, you, you hate all evildoers. Romans 5, 5. God doesn't just hate the sin. God hates sinners. D.A. Carson says 14 times, 14 times in the first 50 Psalms alone, 
we are told God hates sinners. When I was a relatively young Christian, there was a verse that would scare the daylight out of me. And for some reason, I kept going back to look at it. I was then using the KJV, and it reads this way. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that's from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18.20. Even then, as a young man, I knew that God's sword was hanging over my head. Now, at this point, people might start to concede, and they would say something like, okay, maybe God has a right after all to be wrathful. But does he need to be this wrathful? I mean, eternal torment in an eternal hell? Let me respond by putting it this way. If you cherish someone very deeply, and this person is very precious to you, you will hate whatever threatens to destroy her. If your sweet little child is brutally violated by a pedophile and killed, you will not respond to him with a kind of a benign tolerance. No, no, no. You will be enraged. You will go on a rampage. You will be venomous. You will want to rip up, open his throat. By the way, and this one is for free. By the way, this capacity in the human heart to, be, to have this outrage against pointless evil is an existential argument for the ex existence of God. It was Peter Berger who calls it a signal of transcendence. I've recently blogged about it. If you want to talk, this is not a platform for it now, but if you want to talk about it, I'm, I'll be happy to do so. But the point is this. The point is this, we need to realize that our rebellion against God is infinitely, infinitely, infinitely a greater sin than all sins put together. If treating an animal cruelly could land you in jail, if killing another human person could get your head lopped off, then when you assault the glory of the infinite holy God, you offend the infinitely great and supreme exalted being. God's wrath is a proportionate judgment upon a sin that violates his holiness so despicably. God's wrath reveals his infinite holiness. Tim Chalice says, if you ask whether hell exists, you are really asking, is God truly holy? Hell is so furious because God is so outrageously holy. Hell is so unbearably tormenting because God's holiness is so exorbitantly precious. Hell is so insufferably long because God's holiness is infinitely priceless. Now, where does all this leave us? It, leave us? it leaves us for dead, literally. But of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall die. You know, the devil, the devil offered us his chalice of poison, 
with these words, Sirot Eret Dei. You shall not die. You shall be as God. And we swallowed his poison in one big gulp. Romans fifteen twelve. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. That was who we were before we came to Jesus: sinners. Rebels deserving death, dangling over the fire of hell on a very thin cotton, and a very thin cotton it was. It was Jonathan Edwards who say, "If God should let you go, then your health, your wisdom, your self-righteousness would not be able to keep you out of hell." Any more than a spider's web could stop a falling rock, and it is right here that we find our text so God-glorifying and so grace-drenching, drenching rather. It says, "In wrath, God remembers mercy." But glorious as this text is, and I shall get to it in a, in a moment, we find a second problem that has stumped a lot of people, and it is this. It is that God, before the foundation of this world, should choose to love some and call them to salvation, and leave some to their damnation in their wrath. And this has plagued a lot of people. The fact that God should pick out for Himself some whom He would call vessels of grace, and others whom He would call vessels of wrath. That God chooses to save people in His mercy. But he doesn't choose to save everyone. Out of the same lump of clay of fallen humanity, he has chosen some and left others to their doom. To those whom he has chosen, he has dealt with them in grace. But to those whom he has not chosen, he has dealt with them in justice. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this. God grants mercy to some and justice to others. Verse eleven, twelve, thirteen of the same chapter is perhaps the best commentary on twenty-one and twenty-two, and reads this way: Though they were not yet born and had nothing, either good or bad, in them that they had done, God says, "Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hate." And most people, on hearing this, would immediately cry foul. It's not fair, they say. How is it ever right for God to choose whom to love and whom to hate? But if you look at the text carefully, you will find that Paul actually unravels this quandary for us. Look at verse twenty-two of our text. It answers the question why God. Did not choose whom he did not choose. I'll say that again. Verse twenty-two answers the question as to why God does not choose whom He does not choose, and it is this: it says, "In order to show His wrath against sin, that He is a holy God who hates sin." God acts to show His power in judgment. 
and to, the, and to those whom he does choose. Paul again gives us the, gives us the answer, and that, that's in verse 23. He chose those whom he chose to make known the riches of his glory. Paul is saying here, God's free sovereign choice of loving some and hating others is to show his wrath, show his power, and show his glory. So it all turns out to be all about God and not about us at all. At all. Now let me put it this way to help us make this a bit clearer. And that is this. For God's glory to shine as brightly as it could possibly shine in all its luminosity, in all its splendor, Edwards would say in all its effulgence, for God's glory to, s- to shine out to us in all its clarity, we should be able to see every facet of God's attributes, of God's character. Then, and only then, can we fully bow before God and, and worship Him fully, because we would have seen that He's holy, He's righteous, He's gracious, He's forgiving, He's long-suffering, He's tender-hearted, He's gracious, He's merciful, He is just. But how will we ever get to see every single aspect of God's glory if sin had never been decreed? So that we can see him hating sin and then consequently come to see his holiness. If there were no sin, we would know nothing of God's holiness. Do you get that? If there were no sin decreed, we would never come to know that God is holy. If there were no defiance, you will, come, you will never come to know of God's forgiveness. If there were no disobedience to pardon, you would never come to know God's grace and forgiveness. And consequently, you would not know every single facet of God's glory. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. God ordained some to be vessels of wrath and God ordained some to be vessels of mercy so that we may see his wrath, his power, and his glory. Now, if you think that by suggesting that God didn't ordain sin, you'll be bringing him great honor, don't bet on it. You'll only be doing the opposite. You'll only be denying him of his sovereign power over all things. But let's look at this charge of God being unfair in another way. When you think about it more soberly, you will see that the question of fairness is itself unfair. Because fairness presumes that you have rights and that your rights are violated. But Jacob and Esau didn't have any rights to start with. Both were sinners through their inherent Adamic nature, deserving wrath. If God were to be fair to both of them, they would instantly perish, both of them. What is spectacular is not that God hated Esau. What is spectacular is that God loved Jacob. No one is a victim of injustice here. To be denied mercy is not to be treated unjustly. Mercy is not a right. 
But it is shocking, isn't it, that God would even show mercy to Jacob. And this is what, what I want to talk about for the rest of our time together, the mercy of God. Let me first say, at first look, it would look like in order for God to be merciful, he must be overlooking his justice. At first look, it would appear that God's justice and God's mercy are hopelessly incompatible. That's at first look. Because it would appear that if God's mercy, uh, to show us mercy, we are so deserving of his wrath. And so if he shows us mercy, he must have closed one eye to justice. But if God did that, if God closed one eye to justice, he wouldn't be God. We all know about judges who have lost their nerves to be, ju to be just. They would be disbarred. They would be taken off the bench because they would only be betraying their office. But the deeper we look, we shall see that God's mercy is perfectly concordant with his justice. How so, you ask? The cross of Christ. At the foot of the cross of, of Christ, that is the point where God's mercy and God's justice kiss each other. All said and done, it wasn't the Jews that crucified Jesus. All said and done, it wasn't even the Romans who crucified Jesus. And even though he died for your sin, all told, it wasn't even you in your sinfulness that resulted in him being crucified. Bottom line, it was God who crucified Jesus. Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Hanging there on the cross, Jesus was serving a just sentence for sinners. He bore our sins on himself, and the Father saw him as vile and detestable, and the Father's wrath against him was poured out in his fullness. God unsheathed his wrath, and the sword was plunged into the heart of his own son, and the son bore it all, absorbed all the wrath of the father. Michael Horton, in his short article, Saved from God, says, although Jesus freely gave up his life to the father, it was nevertheless a death penalty that God executed as a just judge of the universe. So you see, the Son suffered the justice of God so that we may receive the mercy of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 And Horton, Michael Horton says, Love without justice is mere sentimentality. So on the cross, we see both the fullness of the mercy of God and the fullness of the justice of God. And it was the psalmist who beautifully puts this together. Mercy and truth have met each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now with all that resolved, let's take a closer look at mercy. 
Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan writer, in his book, A Body of Divinity, has a most invaluable section on the mercy of God. Twelve theses altogether. You should read it. And I want to mention just three of them because of time constraint. The first is this. God is any day more inclined to mercy than he is to wrath. Any day. God is any day more inclined to mercy than he is to wrath. Psalms 30, for his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Micah 7, he delights in mercy. Isaiah 27, fury is not in me, meaning it is not my work to do. Another Puritan writer says, mercy is God's right hand, easy. Wrath is his left hand. He, he doesn't do it as he would want to in his heart. Fury is not in me. Jeremiah says, God does not afflict willingly from his heart. Let me put it this way. To be merciful, that is his delight. To be wrathful, Isaiah says, that is his strange work. Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one. The God who delights in mercy actually calls out to us, pleads with us to come to him. The God who delights in mercy actually calls out to sinners to lay hold on his mercy. This is Revelation 22. Piper says this is a most beautiful invitation. Can you imagine that? All of you sitting there this morning, this morning listening to me, can you not can you not see this, that, that, that God in his mercy is calling out to you, pleading with you? Watson puts it beautifully. God is desirous that sinners should touch the golden scepter of his mercy and live. I love that. God is desirable that we should touch the golden scepter of his mercy and live. Now, this is unheard of. You could never go to a court proceeding and see the judge on the bench bending over and, and pleading with the accused in the dock. No judge would ever do that. It is the defense counsel who pleads for his clients. But Watson says, mercy woos the sinners. It even kneels down to them. God says, poor sinners, suffer me to love thee. Be willing to let me save thee. Unheard of. This is baffling. This is the most unimaginable thing. But right here is in the word of God. It's in Ezekiel 33. And many times in Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn their ways and call on me. So turn, turn. Turn back to me and live. Unheard of. Unheard of. The righteous judge would plea to the accused and say, turn that you may have life. So my first point about mercy is this. God is any day more inclined to mercy than he is to wrath. Secondly, Mercy sweetens every single attributes of a single mercy sweetens every single attribute of God. What is God's holiness? 
What would God's holiness be without mercy? What would God's justice be without mercy? God's mercy overarches every other single attribute of God, sweetens all his other attributes. Thirdly, God's mercy is new every morning. And Jonah read out to us this morning, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And some Puritan divines would say they are new every moment. The next moment in time, it's new again. And then when you leave this place for lunch, it's new again. God's mercies are new every single moment because he knows that without his mercy we perish. And so he showers upon us fresh mercies every single moment. We are on the home stretch now, and this is where I want to ask the so what question. If I'm making all this music about the mercy of God, how then shall we live in the light of God's mercy? Firstly, don't spurn it. Don't spurn the mercy of God and spend the next trillion years in utter harrowing anguish in hell under the wrath of God. And then only to spend the next following trillion years again ad infinitum. Don't. I plead with you, if you are not a Christian this morning, don't wait for another week to pass. You never know. Death is not a respecter of age. In the December of 1995, the Canadian Singer and songwriter Lorena McKinnett traveled across Siberia in a train. And she tells us that she happens to be reading Dante's Inferno at that time. And looking out of the train at the bleak and austere landscape of Siberia, it prompted her to write her very haunting song, Dante's Prayer. She speaks of the nights that seem endless. She speaks of stone of sorrow. She begged that she be given, that she begged that her clay of feet be given wings to fly. And she talked about casting her soul into the sea. Now I doubt that there are three of us here this morning who have read Dante's Inferno from cover to cover. But you don't need to, to understand what hell is. Because the most merciful person that ever walked this planet spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And he's saying to you this morning, the very mercy that now woos you will be your prosecutor. It will indict you and it will damn your soul to hell. And so he's saying to you this morning, don't listen to the devil's logic. Don't swallow his poison. Suffer me to love thee this morning. Suffer me to love thee. Touch the golden scepter of his mercy and live. So that's our first response. Do not spurn the mercy of God. 
And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you should be actively seeking baptism the following week. You really should. The second response is this. Learn to cry on behalf of this suffering world for the mercy of God. Habakkuk the prophet did this on behalf of his people. He would cry to God. He would say, God, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, of course, the world has yet to see the full unleashing of the wrath of God, and that has not yet come. But if you have, but if you have eyes to see, you can see the plunder of death everywhere. That's the reason why every man, woman, and child dies. That's the reason why there's so much futility, misery, distress, travail, agony, rape, loss of loved ones, illness, loneliness, depression, persecution, beheadings, destruction of sacred places. Every single day, untold number of human people suffer untold depth of suffering and sorrow. We all live in a veil of tears. We need, as a church, corporately, to learn how to cry out to God in, for mercy. We don't have a clue, as a church, how to do this. And I'm not necessarily talking about Christ's sanctuary. Largely, most Western churches do not know how to lament, how to cry for the mercy of God, how to collectively weep for the mercy of God. It is such a tragic loss, and we are all the poorer for it. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says, In many congregations, you'll see piety in the sanctuary, while in the basement, someone is doing pastoral care. But the two functions don't connect. I'll say that again. Walter Brueggemann says, in most congregations you go to, you will see piety in the sanctuary while in the basement someone is doing pastoral care. And the two functions don't connect. Did you not know that collectively, the Psalms of the Lament comprises the second largest collection of Psalms? And some scholars would insist the largest collection, 67 of 150 psalms are psalms of lament. And yet when we sing psalms, which we do and we should, we pick only those that are euphoric and jubilant and buoyant, and rightly we should. But we leave behind large portions of psalms that express desolation and anguish and shame and sorrow and despair and misery. What seems to be happening here? An entire corpus of literary genre quietly airbrushed over from our collective consciousness. So much of our worship these days may look like a cover-up. We hype up emotions we don't really have and we smother the emotions that we do have only to walk back to the car park after the service is over and there pick up your real nagging pain again. And sooner or later, people get tired of faking it. 
We don't bring our pain to God collectively as a body. We don't cry and weep for the mercy of God for this world collectively. We don't know how to. In my many years as a pastor, I didn't know how to. I still don't. The saving grace is this. More and more writers are writing about it. And more and more people are talking about it now. I plead with you to explore creative ways to cry out to God collectively for his mercy. That we may know how to face our own suffering and the suffering of the world. That's our second response. And with this third response, I shall end. Learn to savor every single minute, every single moment, the mercy of God. You wake up in the morning, you have a bad migraine, the mercy of God. The fact that you, eat, the fact that you even wake up at all, the mercy of God. In pain, in pleasure, the mercy of God. The results from the lab has come back. And it's terribly bad. The mercy of God. And someone has decided to pay off all your mortgage. The mercy of God. In pain, in pleasure, the mercy of God. You've just been made redundant. And your daughter has just cooked you the best lamb kurma. The mercy of God. In pain and in pleasure. The mercy of God. Now why? Why in pain and in pleasure the mercy of God? Because Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations 3, had it not been for the mercy of God, we would all have been consumed we would all have been consumed there, but for his mercy, we would have all perished. So whatever pain or pleasure come your way will all be mercy. And from now to the end of the year, all you will have is mercy. And when next year comes again, all you will have is mercy again, year after year after year. It's all of mercy. So let us all learn to savor every single moment the mercy of God. Amen.